Well, it's good to see the friends of God here tonight. Let's lift our hearts up to the Lord in a brief word of prayer. Ask the Holy Spirit to be with us. Holy Father, we come in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would aid your people tonight. Enable Christ to be formed in us, as your speaker told us this morning. And may we be corrected by your word. May our hearts be lifted up with truth. And may we repent of our sins. The things that we have not even considered to be against you. The very ideas that seem to be left over from the days when we were under the dominion of sin. So I pray that the word be made clear tonight. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open the ears of your people. And we pray, Father, that your Son might be glorified tonight. May we praise you for your greatness, and may we cling to our Christ as our great refuge. And Holy Spirit, we pray, dwell within us richly that we might be like the Lord Jesus himself. We pray these things for his glory. Amen. Amen. I'd have to say that it is a wonderful privilege to be able to preach the Word of God, but there's also, upon everyone that teaches and preaches the Word of God, the responsibility that he will give an account of what he does and what he says. And so it has been uh, a concern to me that, uh, that the Lord be with our congregation. I ask that the Lord would uh, protect our flock from heresies, from things that are wrong, and uh, it's not always, you know, from false prophets, but sometimes from well-meaning people that follow their imaginations rather than the Word of God. Mm -hmm. And so I hope that, that this congregation will be led solely by the Word of God. Amen. And I ask that we give ourselves to understanding. Uh, this is a little bit of a, uh, an introduction to this particular psalm. We we, the last time I spoke about the Psalms, we looked at Psalm number 1. And many theologians have considered Psalm 1 and 2 to be kind of together. In fact, some have thought that they should be together in one Psalm. But if you recall, I believe it was the Apostle Paul, I believe uh, in the book of Acts, I can't remember where, but he, he referred to the passage in Psalm 2. And he actually said, and remember, brothers, where it says in the second Psalm, so, you know, I'd rather just, you know, go by his leadership, you know, rather than to say that uh, we, I'm not too sure about this. But I think this, this is the second psalm. I think we'd be pretty sure about that. I would like to read these short 12 verses to you to get them in our minds all together. And as I go through that, I'm, I'm going to identify some separations in it. Now, most of the people that I've read, they, they say, oh, this is, this is easy to divide into sections. And then one will divide it in four sections, and another will divide it in three sections, and another will divide it in five sections. And I'm, I suppose it's easy enough to divide it in 12 sections if we wanted to. But I've chosen uh, Spurgeon's lead on this from his Treasury of David, and he, he divided up in five different sections. And uh, Phil Johnson, he went to you know, another direction and so on. But I want you to notice, <clears throat> when I read this to you in a few seconds, uh, the voice now and point of view. Now, I don't mean like, you know, what kind of a beautiful tenor or a thing like that, or what kind of perspective they have, like their point of view. But the point of view means who is speaking? 
who is speaking and about uh, to whom is being spoken. And so let's read uh, this, uh, Psalm 2, verses 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves... Um, well, let me read this again. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst our bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, this is one of the divisions that I want to make note that if you'll notice... It's like, the, it's like the writer of the psalm himself is saying, look at the world. And that's the, the, the view is from the writer's viewpoint. But while in those three verses, we are just considering what the world is doing, especially the leaders and kings of the world. Verse number four is kind of set off by itself. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now, this word derision, you can, you can think of a word like contempt, okay? But many put these, uh, this verse together with the next two, but I'm going to separate it out because I, I find it interesting that the, you know, the reader, I mean the writer of this says, consider the one in heaven, look at him, and he is the one who is looking also at the world, as we are looking at the world, and he looks at them and just merely laughs. But then five and six, then he will speak to them in wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so this is, again, another section that I would consider, you know, the writer saying, look at the one on the throne and see how he sees the world. And then the one on the throne, he actually uh, projects his point of view, and he speaks to the world directly in, in plain speech, not just, uh, just laughing. You know, sometimes when you see someone laugh, you're not too sure what they're laughing about. Sometimes you, you know, or, or you, you know, there's a lot of reasons or a lot of ways that people, and remember, laughing is an anthropomorphism. If you know, don't know what that means, it just means that it, uh, the writer is telling us what, what God was saying. This is me doing this. But we know that God, God does not even have vocal cords. And yet, he's telling us about himself. And so, God speaking. Now, the next section, the next three verses, we're going to see a complete switch around where the rebellion against God and his anointed, now the anointed is going to be speaking. Verses 7 through 9, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, now this is the Lord, this is the Lord Jesus speaking. And he's saying, my father spoke to me and let me tell you what he told me. You are my son. Today have I begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So now we go back to the viewpoint where the writer is now addressing the world again. With this information, world, this is what he says to them. Now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. 
Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we can see that this is a, a very clear and very good place to get a better understanding of who the Lord is. The doctrine that I would say, there are many doctrines that can be taught from this, many, many doctrines. But I'm going to lean in a direction that helps me present my other series, which will be uh, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you consider the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation and the 6th chapter of the book of Revelation, and then look at this one, they all tie in to the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ as being king. And so the doctrine I'd have you consider tonight is this. There is only one who is in control of all of creation, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I want you to consider. So, as we take a look at this, I want you to now to remember what we said about Psalm 1. And I want you to make a comparison between these two, because many have thought that these two go together, and they do. It's appropriate that one follows the other, and they both introduce the entire book of Psalms. Now, the book of Psalms are many, many different prayers and, 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 uh, and songs of, of praise, but also laments. But this is an appropriate introduction to the entire book. And when we consider what we've just read to what we've already studied in the first Psalm, I would like to give you some comparisons and even make a contrast between the two. So to begin with, remember that in Psalm 1, we saw that there was a righteous man and the wicked. And there was a comparison made. Blessed is the righteous. And then the, and, and the, and the sinner, he falls in condemnation before God. So that was a comparison. There was a contrast between the sinner and the wicked. Now in Psalm 2, there's also a contrast. But it is between the wicked of the world who are surely doomed and the, and the, and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ to be the king forever. And to rule over all. So that's the big comparison. The rulers of the earth and the Lord himself, Jesus Christ. So the first one, this is the righteous, this is the wicked. But here are the rulers of the world and here is the Lord Jesus himself. And so these two go together and they're both very good information for us to have to approach our lives. Now also, we can see that the wicked are defeated in both. But they have a slightly different feel about them. In Psalm 1, the wicked are like the chaff that are dry, and the wind comes and blows them away. There is nothing before the wind. But when it comes to the second Psalm, we have those opposing the Lord, and men have set up kingdoms. They've set up great bulwarks of power. And even now, if you look at the world, we have nuclear weapons, and we have all types of powers and and things that are just mighty. And when one nation goes against another nation, they say, well, how are you going to do it? Well, let's sit in our plans. Let's, let's study this. This is a great thing. But it says in Psalm 2 that, that, that Christ will just shatter them like a pot. Just like a cat going up on your mantle and start shoving your precious moments right off, one after the other. Boom, boom, crash, splatter. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ is no, not even a comparison. And so we have... The wicked being blown away by the chaff. And then the mighty kingdom of the world just exploding in splinters on the floor like a broken piece of glass or pottery. We also see that Christ is glorified in different ways. 
in the first psalm, we say, blessed is the man. And then we see that no one can do this except Christ. And so it comes to our, you know, to, to the, the final decision that this is, description, is a description of the perfect man who is Jesus Christ himself. Oh, wouldn't it be nice to be like Christ? Blessed is the man who takes his refuge in him. That's the end of the second psalm. You see, we have Christ is glorified in that way. We are like a tree planted by a river, and Christ is like that also, except he is the one that all nations of the world shall bow down to. All the islands of the world, all the mountains, everything is there, and they will all bow down. And the way it's described in this psalm is that they will bow down even kissing the dust. They will kiss the sun. And we may say, well, isn't that kind of arrogant? You know, only the kings of the earth would say, come and kiss my shoes. You know, but we need to, we need to consider this, that the kings of this world disdain this God. And the one who looks at them are saying, you have no idea. You are actually kissing the feet of Christ as we speak. There is no one that is not under the rule of Christ. Mm -hmm. They think that they're not under his rule. They think that they live with their own power, that they move themselves. But Christ is in control of all things. They do not even know it, but they kiss the feet of Christ. But one day their wills will be in subjection. One day their knee shall be bowed with a volition. So let's get into the observations that we can see from this. And let's, um, let's go and, and try to make our divisions a little bit better. I want to divide this up into five different areas. The first one, of course, we saw was verses 1 through 3. This is the world's view. And this is the council chamber of the world. And they reveal their hatred of God. The world actually gets together in a council chamber and say, what do we do with this God? What are we going to do? We, we have a problem here. He is in our way. Now, the next section, verse number four, which I've separated off by itself, just merely because it is strange for me that the Lord laughs at this. And so the Almighty, this is number two, just verse by itself. This is from God's view. The Almighty reveals what he thinks of the world's rebellion. And now he doesn't say a lot of words about it. He merely laughs. He merely laughs. And the next section, verses four, uh, five and six, we see God's view again. But this time, God speaks. He tells the world plainly what he is going to do. The next section, section number four, we have verses seven through nine. And this is where the anointed himself declares his sovereignty, and he warns the traitors about their doom. This is spoken from the Lord Jesus' point of view. He tells of his sovereignty, and he speaks to the traitors and warns them about their doom. The last section, sections 10 through 12, the verses 10 through 12, is spoken as if it were by the writer himself. And he kind of backs up and he says, Now, world, would you please consider what God has said and what the anointed has said? And he gives them counsel to repent. So let's get into this and learn a little bit more. In the first three verses, we read, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, Let us burst our bands apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, this is a very good question at the beginning, isn't it? Why do the nations rage and the people plot? It's vanity that they should do so. It says right here that it's in vain. It's an empty exercise. But the question is still there. Why do they do it? Why are they in such a rage? They have actually gotten together and they've actually talked with each other. Hey, you and I, we need to get together. We need to speak. We have a problem. It's not you. It's not me. It's God. They have banded themselves together as though there was a common enemy. And they, the question is still there. Why are they upset with God? Why are they in a rage? Why are they actually plotting against him? And uh, there's a difference between a plan and a plot to me. You make a plan when everything is like, well, we have a problem. We're going to make a plan. We're going to solve it. But a plot, that seems a little bit more like, you know, don't tell any about this. We want this to be undercovers. We want this to be just between us so that our enemy does not find out. You know, the loose lips, they sink ships. And so let's keep that between us. And we would think that these people are able to overthrow God because we won't let God know that we're after him. You know, God will never find out. We'll take him by surprise. And so the question still stands, why do they even try? Why are they plotting against God? Now, when I look at this, it kind of has a, a question that's not even been answered yet and not even been asked yet. And, and the question is this. The rulers and kings of the world, they plot against God. But my question is, well, who is in control? Who is in control of the world right now? Is Putin? Is Biden? Is she? Is, is, is there anybody on this planet that has any real control over anything. You may say, well, we have control over the United States. Well, I believe that in certain perspective, it's true. From our perspective, what God says, this is how I want to run things. Remember, um, I've done a lot of thinking about Job lately, but whenever I think of Job, I think of God who has someone whom he loves and he has something special around him. He called it a hedge, a hedge built around Job. Nothing can go and hurt Job unless God permits that to happen. Now, I want to use a word like permit, but I want you to kind of give that word a loose meaning. Sometimes I will allow things to happen, and sometimes I will, I will I'll give permission. Uh, in other words, my approval. Yes, you may do that to my children or this. And I don't talk like that to them. You know. But what I mean is that there is, in a sense, the idea of approving what you have permitted. But God is baited by Satan. And Satan thinks he wins the debate. He allows, God allows Satan to do something to Job. And then Satan says, oh, I want to be able to touch him. Now, what do you think the Lord said to himself? And that, that might be hard to, to really find out. Isn't it? But what do you think the Lord said to himself? I'm going to approve of what you're about to do to Satan. Do you think the Lord said that? I really, oh, are you going to cover him in boils? Are you going to kill his children? Are you going to take all that he has? Are you going to make his life miserable? You know, I like that idea. I approve of it. Do you think the Lord said that? Well, of course not. 
Of course he did not. But permitting him to do that. Now there's another instance. That's the question of, well, who's in control? How is there evil in this world? And God says that he's on his throne. And here we have people suffering. It's like what the modern preachers would say. Oh, why, does, why do bad things happen to good people? And of course, the answer is there are no good people. You know, and, and, and Spurgeon even once said, you know, don't be so upset when people say bad things about you. You know, if they knew the truth, it would be even worse. <laughs> and so the idea that God is permitting this, we need a better word than that. God does not grant an approving permission for Satan to attack and to harm his people. But we must understand that God is still on his throne and that he is in control of all things. And though, it's, it's like we have to come to the same conclusion that Job comes to. Though he slay me, and he's talking about the Lord, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him because all that will happen to us all of it. It may be horrendous and it may be tough, but God is still on his throne. And this psalm is telling us that. This psalm is saying that the world thinks they're in control. They even plot against God. They don't even make it a secret. But God, what does he say? Huh. I mean, it's not a funny laugh, is it? It's not a funny laugh. He just, it's like wagging your head and saying, what is going on here? And so, the idea that God has said, these things shall happen. The hedge that we can see with our eyes may be removed, but the hedge of God's love is never gone. His power to preserve and keep his people the way he wants them to be preserved and kept are, is still there. Though we may live through a life that puts our blood under the altar, we are still in the hand of God, and it is better than if we had done so ourselves. Much, much better, much, much better, infinitely better than if we could choose our own destiny. This is why many times people will say to me, well, if that's the kind of God you worship, I don't want him. And why? Because they have their own idea of the way they want things to go. And they will say to themselves, hmm, what can we do to overthrow this God? I'll not be one of those people that, that'll, that'll serve him. Now, I want you to consider these verses where it says, the kings of the earth set themselves. I want you to notice that when we read the section where God says, I have a king. Well, what about these kings? Well, they've set themselves, not by God. Now, we can always say that God and his providence make sure that these things happen. But also the idea that there is the goal of the sinner and the goal of Satan. And they will say, I will lift up myself. I will do this. I will do that. And it is not approved morally by God. But it's also under his control that it will work out exactly for the good of God's people eventually. For all things will work to the good of those who love the Lord. It all works out good. And sometimes people say, oh, it's a good thing that I had a flat tire because then I would have run through a red light. No, no, no. It's far beyond that. It's far beyond the flat tire and the red light. Okay? It's everything, everything works for the good. And it may be that we go through the fire. It may be that we go through the flood. That's true. Everything 
is at God's disposal. And our part in this is to live for the glory of God, to do the right thing, because we have the power of knowing that God is in control, and therefore we can still be good and not lie to save our side, to save our lives, to not kill to save our lives, to not live ungodly to save our lives. You know why? Because God saves our lives. God saves our lives. We can live godly and still rest in God. That is the purpose of knowing that Jesus Christ is God of all. Now, I want you to compare the way the kings set themselves up. You know, so if you have a coronation and the king says, I want everyone to really enjoy the way I'm going to be set out over them. And so they have a great big party. They have all kinds of taxes to pull in great big, you know, decorations and food and this and that. And of course, the people are paying for it and they'll all come and they'll all, you know, cheer when they're supposed to cheer. That's the way kings are coronated. And of course, the Lord did that with the Lord Jesus, didn't he? Of course he did not. The Lord Jesus, is, it's almost as though God has created so many things ironically that the world is being shown the truth over and over again, and yet the world refuses to see, will not see, does not want to see. Let me read you the way the Lord is coronated. And it was just preached to us recently. It was very, very good. It's very enlightening. Matthew 21, 1. Of course, we, I think we read, we, we did the, the preaching was done out of Mark. But I want to read this to you. 21, verses 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, and a foal of a beast of burden. This is not like the kings of the world. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd uh, spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he'd entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? Now, do you think the kings would coronate themselves with someone anywhere in the crowd that says, Who is this? That's not the way the kings coronate themselves. That's not the way they take the throne. No one in the crowd is going to say, Well, who is this? But the Lord does. The Lord does. And who is it? Well, to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? To whom has it been shown that God is on his throne? It's those who have had their hearts touched by the Holy Spirit. And they see his hand everywhere. They see his thumbprints on all his creation. They see the depth of his knowledge, the power. And, it doesn't, and he will come humbly. And what did the crowd say? Well, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And they may say, well, Nazareth? And they all look at each other. 
But I'm going to tell you something. Isaiah and Zechariah described it accurately when it said that he's going to come in a most humble way on a beast of burden. Humble. The kings of this world are not humble. And they are not the servants of the people they rule over. But our God came this way. But you see, he is still in control. Even though Herod, you know, I'm, I'm, we'll, just take, we'll just talk about Herod the Great, the one that killed all the children. And then he died. Well, then Herod, he died before the Lord was crucified, but, he, but the kingdom was divided uh, between his sons by, by Caesars. And then they, even they, they did not want Christ to be king at all. The kings of this world plotted together. They plotted with the Romans. They plotted with the Pharisees. Now, what more can be true than Psalm 2 about the death of our Lord? Let me read it to you from Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 24, we read this. Now, this is after the apostles were in the temple. They were, uh, uh, they were arrested for preaching and then sent home. Uh, after being told, you shall not speak in the name of Christ. And this is what they said. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, and through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? They said, this is exactly what's going on in Psalm chapter 2. This is it. We've got the sons of Herod. We've got Pilate. We've got the Gentiles. We've got everyone plotting against his son. Now, why would they consider the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, who came in such a humble way, that the peoples of this world could just easily come, take him, beat him within an inch of his life, and then crucify him and murder him. And that the world, they say, look at that. This, this is your king? This weakling? Why, he, he's like, he's, he's not even a ram, he's just a lamb. And that's what the world sees, a lamb that could be slain. But we know that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, don't we? We know that he was in charge. We know that he gave his life for the sins of his people. And not like what the Romans said, the, the Pharisees would say, you know, Antipas, the priest, we all know that it's better that the nation not be divided by Rome and that one man should die to save us. So let's do that. Let's kill that man and get the Romans off our back. And yet he said it because he was the high priest and it was true that one man should die to save the nation of what? Of the elect. Mm. To save the nation of believers. Yes. Amen. Now I'm telling you, the world doesn't see kings the way we see kings. And the world thinks that God is not in control, but he is in control. And they say, well, he'll be in control one day. No, he's in control now. Yes, he is. Oh, oh one day he's going to come back and take over. No, no, no. He is in control right now. Every minute of every day is in control. So, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord his anointed. I'm still reading from Acts chapter 
4, verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It doesn't get any plainer than that. Do you see the wording of it? Psalm 2. They plotted together. To do what? To do what you predestinated to do. By your hand, by your mighty power. He was in control. And they still don't know it. They don't know it and they're never going to know it. Not unless they fall down and worship God and worship Christ and kiss the feet of the anointed. That'll be the day when they know it. And now, Lord, look upon your, their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and the signs and wonders are performed through your name and your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That is how God rules this world. God rules the world. He that is on the horse in chapter 19 of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ had a mighty sword come out of his mouth. On his thigh was the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And his name was the Word of God. His name was the Word of God. How does God do this? By his means. The means of the truth. Oh, what is truth? I know what truth is. It is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Mm -hmm. That is the truth. Now, <clears throat> it says in these first three verses, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast them away, cast away their cords from us. What kind of bonds does God have on this world, by the way? <clears throat> what kind of cords are they referring to? They do, not, they do not even see the hand of God in creation. They do not see that God is in control. They think they are in control. And yet, somehow, they say there's bonds and cords over them. What time of cords are they referring to? Why do they think that they could actually cast them up and cast them away? I can only say this. Sometimes, morality just plain gets in the way of a king. Sometimes, doing the right thing is just inconvenient. Sometimes, the rulers of this world they need to do what needs to get done. And that means they have to cast away the bondage and the cords of God's law and the knowledge that God is in control. They rebel against God. Now, would anyone ever rebel against an unjust ruler? Well, I would imagine so. Would anyone rebel against unjust taxes? I'd imagine so. Would anyone rebel against an immoral dictator? Well, just who are they rebelling against? Who? Someone that, that ruins their lives? Someone that gives them nothing but just stale bread to eat? They ask for a fish and God gives them scorpions? Is that what they're thinking? Is that what they, they think of God? The common grace given to this world would demand unquestionable loyalty from anyone. The very air in their lungs. The very ability to get up in the morning. And yet, like Pharaoh. Can you hear Pharaoh's voice right now from the world? 
Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Mm -hmm. That's what the whole world is saying. Mm -hmm. That's what they all have in their hearts. Mm -hmm. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Or the servants of someone that said, well, he's been our master for years. And so they are entrusted. I'm going to go off to another country. And what do the servants say? Uh, do we, we do not want this man to reign over us. The voice of the world. They collude together. They conspire together. They look at each other and say, oh, the Lord's delayed is coming. What do you say we party tonight? What do you say we do this? He'll never miss a goat. He'll never miss a calf. He'll never miss something. He's so rich. Let's just take it from us. If we kill him, we shall have the inheritance. They take up the cheer and the cry of the devil himself. And yet they think they're in charge. The cords that they want to cast off are the cords of justice, the cords of compassion and love and grace. Why do they cast them off? Because they would rather live in their pride. They would rather live in their arrogance. They would rather say it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. They want to live with God in their disdain. All right, let's move on to the second section. Verses, um, <clears throat> let's see. Let's go to verse, well, I, mm, I'm kind of confused here. Uh, verse, the second section is the Lord laughs. Just one verse. This is God's point of view. So let me see. It says here, he who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision, which means contempt, by the way. Now, like I said before, uh, I don't think that the Lord thinks this is actually humorous. I don't think he thinks this is funny. He doesn't slap his thigh and go, that's a good one. No, he doesn't do that. I don't think the Lord finds this humorous. I think what he laughs about is the very idea that we, he wants us to see him in heaven on his throne laughing at him knowing, completely knowing the absurdity and the irrationality of the world's rebellion against him. It's ludicrous to think that the world could entertain the idea that they can overcome the Almighty, and yet they do it. I mean, they do it all the time, generation after generation after generation. They live to be in rebellion against God. And God wants us to see his laughter with his head shaking so that we can understand that the world is in a hopeless completely has a hopeless depth of pure hatred of God. And he shakes his head, laughing. What hope do they have? Why? Well, I could give you some examples. I suppose it's like us, you know, stepping on an anthill or, or you know, that type of thing. You know, all the different um, comparisons that we could make where God is much more powerful. But even the comparisons, they pale. They pale it doesn't even, they, they don't even go together. It's as though comparing the, uh, the pain that we suffer in this life with the glory that will one day be revealed in us. There is no comparison in it. Now let's go on to the next section, uh, verses 4 and 5, where the one now, he's done laughing, and then he speaks, and he says this, then he will speak. Notice that. He's laughing, but then he makes plain what's in his heart. 
and he, he then will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And this is what's made plain to the world. They may think they're in charge. They may think that they are kings and that they run their country or they run their neighborhood or they run their family, whatever they are in charge of. But God says, as for me, I see you have a plan. I see that you have a plot. Well, God also has a plan. As for me, I have my king and he is on his throne and he is on Zion. He is on my holy hill. Now, I, this is an amazing vision, if you want to call it a vision. But God says, I know your plans, but I also have a plan. My plan extends from the beginning to the very end. You do not even conceive of my plan. You may think that you are in control, but my anointed one is in control. He is his king. And he is our king. And there is no other king than Jesus. No other one is in control the way he is. He has wanted us to understand that God's king is truly the one in charge. He says these easy to understand words. It's not just laughing. Well, I didn't know what he meant. He laughed and I was kind of confused. No. The words tell us of his wrath. They're spoken in fervor. They should terrify the wicked. Even the very weakest king that God could come up with. Oh, let's just, let's just say, for example, that he comes like, like he just comes into town on a donkey or something. I mean, let's just say that, that he's born poor or that he's, he's not even, you know, he's you know, like a carpenter or something. I mean, just make him so weak that no one would even be threatened by him. The weakest king that God can give is infinitely more powerful than any of them could ever conceive themselves to be. God's weakness is greater than their pow most powerful. His side, his, his side thoughts are more deeper than their greatest philosophers. Everything that God has done has been to show the great contrast by what the world thinks of themselves and who God really is. The great humble, I mean, you know, the one who said, well, I'm not afraid of him. Why, they bring him before Pilate. Hey, I don't, he's nothing. What do you want with him for? No, we have no king but Caesar. Okay, take him and kill him. I don't have time. Do you see? There is God telling us. He's telling the world that he will send one that will be a great leader. He will be the lion of the tribe of Judah, and yet he will be to the world as helpless and harmless as a lamb, and the predators of this world will kill that lamb. He will come and be the example of humility, and the arrogant in this world will kill that lamb. Kill that lamb. He'll come and be gentle to them when they deserve to be slaughtered, but he will be gentle, but Christ will be killed by their cruelty. The anointed will rule with omnipotent providential control over all things. We must really 
set our minds, think about the providential care and power of God. He controls all these things. He provides from the very beginning all of our needs. He knows what we need before we even ask. And yet he says, ask of me. Ask of me. That's what he says. Let's go on to the next section. The anointed is now going to speak. Verses 7 through 9. This is where the Lord Jesus declares his sovereignty and warns the traitor of their doom. And he says this, I will tell thee of the decree. Now here we have a sovereign God. Let me tell you the way it's going to be. Let me tell you the way God has determined it to be. Let me tell you, this is what the Lord Jesus Christ is now saying to the world. This is what God said to me. You are my son, today have I begotten you. Now this could get into a discussion of how we have the Trinity of how the Son is the eternally begotten Son of God, how He became flesh, that would be a great discussion, that would be a great sermon, that would be a great uh, thing to study. But we'll leave that for right now, because He says, I am His only begotten. And remember what He said, the Lord said unto my Lord, and remember how um, uh, Peter said it like this, you tell me, why did David say the Lord said unto my Lord? It's because even David is now a son of God who is the son of John, the son of Christ, spiritually speaking. But Jesus Christ is the only real begotten son of God. We are made the sons of God in Christ. Without Christ, we are not the sons of God. Without Christ, we have no righteousness. Without Christ, we have no rest. Without Christ, we have no king. We have these kings. These people that think they're kings, that's who we have, but we don't have Christ. We got Bidens, and we got Putins, and we got Shays, and we got these people, if we don't have Christ. So, he says this, this is what my Lord said to me, ask of me, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. And do you think that the Lord did? I think he did. I think he most certainly did. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It is an amazing thing. This day have I begotten you. Ask of me, and God will give to him. You know, it is a common thing for kings to, to show their power, and, and when they're pleased with somebody, to grant these type of things. Remember Esther? She had something that no one else had, access to the king. And he was about to be manipulated by Haman to kill all the Jews. And so she went and she presented herself to the king. And the king was pleased to see her. It's a great story. You need to read it. But it boils down to this. He said to Esther, ask of me and I'll give you anything even up to the half of my kingdom. That's what kings usually do. That's what God said to Christ. But he didn't say half, did he? All the nations to the uttermost parts of the world. All of them, you ask of me and I'll give them to you. Do you remember what Pharaoh and, and Joseph's relationship when, when Joseph told Pharaoh about all the famine that was going to come? And Joseph said, you need to find a good man and put him in charge. And Pharaoh said to him, you look like a good man. He says, I'm going to give you all of Egypt except you know, my very throne. 
just just what's you know just just me i'm the only one that'll be at top of you kings have a way of doing that to people they love and trust there was another example in the scriptures about someone saying i want to give you everything up to half of my kingdom do you remember how the daughter of Herodias danced for King Herod? Remember that? And Herod was so pleased. Oh, he was so happy. But you see, this girl that danced, her mother was Herod, you know, Herod's wife. But you see, she was now married to Herod's brother, Philip. And you know what John the Baptist did? He said, it's not lawful for you to be married to him. You cannot do that. And boy, she hated that. She hated that a lot. And so she sent her daughter to dance for Herod, pleased him, pleased everybody at the banquet. You know, it's for his birthday, you know. Oh, this is great. And he said, anything you want. Now compare what God's people do with what the king says. What did Esther do? And then what did this lady do? Bring me the head of John the Baptist. Now, there will be a time when God will grant the kings of this world to do with us whatever they wish to do. And someone's going to say, take their heads. Do this, do that. And it'll be delivered. We will be on the altar. We will be given. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. John the Baptist is in glory. It is just an amazing thing to me that the kings of the earth think that they're in charge, thinking that they can take the heads of Christians attack God's people and say, see, I'm in charge. See what I've been able to do? I took the head of John the Baptist. Nothing happened to me. Oh, the, the short-sightedness. Don't you know that you should be kissing the son lest he get angry? Oh, my goodness. The danger that they're in. The danger that they're in. He can break their governments like a piece of pottery. He can bring them down with just a half a breath. Now let's go to the last 10 through 12, the counsel given to a rebellious world. Now, therefore, O kings, this is what he says to them. This is the writer saying, oh, my goodness, you need to be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Oh, listen to the, to the counsel. Be wise and be warned. Boy, that'll go on a poster. You know, that, that'll go on a bumper sticker. I, you know, listen to the kings of the world. You need to be wise and you need to be warned. The one you attack, the one you plot against, the one whom you kill their servants. You better watch out. The Lord himself, the Lord himself will come against you. He says this, serve the Lord. This is what you should do. This is your warning. This is how you can be wise. You need to serve the Lord with fear and trembling, fear and, and rejoicing. Now, this is a great combination, is it not? Fear and rejoicing. It's kind of like oil and water, don't you think? Like, like those two things together. It's a strange combination. But you see, you need to fear God. You need to have a reverence for God, knowing that God is the only one that can not only destroy the body, like the world does, but he can also destroy the soul. 
And we need to know that rejoicing in God, knowing that he is the one that can save the sinner to the uttermost, and anyone who comes to them, he is the one, he is the king who actually died for his people's sins. Not like the kings of this world. So consider this. There is, in the book of Exodus, in chapter 30, a very detailed description of making an anointing oil called the sweet oil. And it's used by the sons of Aaron to anoint all the things in the tabernacle. And it's used to burn incense to the Lord. And they can't use this for anything else except worshiping God. They can't put it on themselves. It's not a cologne for them. It's not to be taken out. They, you know, the, the ingredients are right there. You can make it, but you're not allowed to make it. You can only use it in the worship of God. These special combinations of putting it together is only to be used in, in, in the worship of God. And now the advice in Psalm chapter 2, we say these special ingredients, fear and rejoicing, they seem to not go well together, but they do make a wonderful anointing incense that burns up to God, and he is very well pleased with it. There is a fear that is good. A reverence of God that is good. But the saving grace, the saving faith of trusting in Christ and repenting of sin has these two things. That there is a wisdom in fearing God, but also a rejoicing in Jesus Christ. When there is fear without joy, it's only torment. And when you have joy without fear, it's presumption. But when you put them together, you have a service to God from the heart to perform that true service. You need to serve your God in fear and rejoicing, trembling. This is how you are wise, and this is how you are to, um, uh, to, 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 to react to this. Be wise and be warned. And so now we come to the last phrase where we have, Kiss the king, lest he be angry. We seem to think, oh my word, this is, um, this is where the world says, what kind of a God do you have? If you don't kiss him, he gets angry. That type of thing. Oh, this is where we have to say that the perished of this world, those that perish in this world, they do so because they, they live by a wrong idea of who God is. <coughs> we, the very idea of kissing the sun it's like, will you not have an affection of heart for the one who has his life in your, you know, your life in his hand? And he has done so in a way that no other king in this world has ever done. He became your flesh. He loved and died for you. What else would you do but kiss the son? Is he not, and it says right here, you are, unless you perish in a way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Have you not considered the long-suffering of God. Because what is quick to God, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Every man is like the grass that grows up and is withered. It's quick. Your life is fast. Your life is quick. And all you have to do is to live your whole life hating God, and then you're done. You're done. You may think that the Lord's anger is something that you can endure, but it is not. Nebuchadnezzar heated his furnace up seven times even hotter when it came to God's children. But it's nothing compared to God's wrath. That's nothing. That is nothing compared to God's wrath. 
You need to take his judgment now. You need to learn wise and be warned and learn to judge yourselves or he will be your judge. Right. Justice will be coming. Justice is coming. And so now hear the conclusion of this whole thing. Blessed is the man who does not stand in a way of sinners, sits in the seat of the scornful. But it says here in the second Psalm concerning the kings of the earth, blessed are all they who take refuge in their king, who takes refuge in the anointed, mm -hmm. who takes refuge in our God. Amen. I'm telling you, there's no other place that you want to take refuge in than is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is sitting on the throne. He rules all things. Uh, this is a time in which we have a wonderful, great, beautiful Savior. And it's not as though one day he'll come back and fix this world. He is actively working, fixing it now. It doesn't get any better. It's not going to get any better. It's exactly the way it's supposed to be. And just having the privilege of being alive and being able to speak the truth where the world can hear us. God is in control. There's only one who is in control of all creation, folks. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let's lift up our lives. Be wise, be warned. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Holy Father, we thank you for your kindness once again, your long-suffering toward this world. Your greatness is far beyond what we can fathom. Your wonderful power. You have abounded toward us in this grace. You, uh, the things that you have done, you've, you, you've created heavens and earth and moved mountains to reach us, to die for our sins. It is the great authority that you have in all this world that you are the worthy lamb, worthy because you have shed your blood to make things right. Not that you have done them wrong, but to make our things right. Thank you for changing our hearts. So, Father, we pray, may our Christ be eternally lifted up and glorified. May your people see him clearly. And may we all rejoice in the King who sits on his throne. Oh, we love to kiss the feet of Christ. We pray these things for his glory. Amen.